Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Being mindful protects us. Being attentive as to what is going on in the mind, in the heart, in our behavior, in the way the body is positioned what it's doing, what is being allowed through the six sense doors, the ears, the eyes, etc. What is being allowed to come in, to seep in, to leak in, and whether there are any guards at these doors. being attentive, being mindful. That's what sati does. It protects, it guards these doors through wakefulness, through attention. But most of our daily lives, we spend it We spend those hours, we spend those years completely neglecting those doors, neglecting to be aware of the body, neglecting to be awake and attentive. So sati protects mindfulness protects, protects us from the kilations, from the defilements that are always there. They work, they don't work nine to five, they work 24 hours, seven days, all throughout the life, our lives. They never take any holidays, they never take any breaks. In that sense, they're really dedicated. And they know pretty much everything about us because we've had them since beginningless times through our samsara, our rebirths. So they have a very good idea what buttons to push, what enticing things to offer us so that they can pull us out from this work that we are doing. The sutta today is Pachalaya Mahana Sutta. In English, we can translate it as dozing off, staying awake, not falling into the trap of sleep <laughs> or becoming unconscious, staying away from becoming unconscious. So in the sutta, we see how Venerable Mahamogallana, he was the second chief disciple, the first being Venerable Sariputta. 
for those of you who don't know um, a, a, a bit of background, a biography, a biographical notes rather on Venerable Sadiq, uh, Venerable Muhammad Galana would uh, be helpful. So, Venerable Sariputta, Venerable uh, Mahamud Gallana were uh, friends from childhood. And uh, they were from the upper class um, uh, caste system of India. So they were very wealthy, very well taken care of. And one time they were attending an entertainment, a show, circus, whatever you want to call it. So something along those lines. So they had gone every day and then eventually, as they're sitting there listening to the entertainment, watching all these acrobats and, and these dancers, etc., one of them has the thought, what am I doing? This is pointless. Things are constantly changing and at the end of it all, we're going to die. So what's the whole point of being lost in pleasure? When all I'm doing is, even before this pleasure, pleasurable experience is over, I'm already seeking another one. So as, let's say, Venerable Sariputta was having this thought, he looks over to his friend, Venerable Ma well, in those days, uh, well, we can't call them, um, uh, the names Muhammad Gallana and uh, Sariputta were names that were in a sense given as their monastic names. One was called Upatissa, the other one was called, uh, the name was Kolita. Kolita was Venerable Muhammad Gallana's name. So he looks over to Kolita and Kolita looks at him and he tells him the same thing, the same thoughts that he was having. How wonderful. And without further ado, they get up and they say, that's it. We're going to find out the answer to our query, our, our quest, which is find out the truth about life, find out liberation, mukha. And they each start looking, well, they together they start looking initially, they leave their homes behind and they take on the lifestyle of a yogi, of a meditator, of an ascetic. And they go studying from one teacher to the next. And then they realize that this is not it. And they come to the agreement that, you know what, you go this way, I'll go this way. But let's make a vow that whoever comes across the Dhamma, the truth, a true teacher, let's make a vow that that person will come looking for the other one. So if I find it, I'll come looking for you. If you do, you come looking for me. And that's when Venerable Sariputta or Upatissa comes across one of the first uh, five disciple, one of the members of the five disciple group of Lord Buddha, Venerable Asaji. And he observes them. He sees that there's a different Think about this samana, this, this ascetic, this monk, as he was walking from door to door, collecting food, and then he's watching him. It doesn't interfere, it doesn't uh, jump in. And he goes and sees him and observes, and then he sees how he sits down and he has his food. 
he's just mesmerized by this whole experience of the presence of the wakefulness of the mindfulness of this venerable. Finally, when Venerable Asaji finishes his meal, Upatissa or the future Sariputta approaches and tell and says, Venerable, you know, who is your teacher? What is his teaching? What is his Dhamma? And uh, Venerable Asaji being so humble, he says, my teacher's teaching, the Dhamma is so vast that there's no way I can actually explain it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm inept in explaining it. And he says, uh, well, is there a way that you can actually summarize it in a very brief way? And Venerable Asaji says, in, I'm paraphrasing, he says, whatever thing that is out there that is conditioned, the great Samana, Gautama, the teacher, the Buddha, has explained its cause. At that moment, Venerable uh, Upatissa becomes uh, Sotapanna. He understands it and he has a right view. Of course, Venerable Asaji continues on with this verse and then Upatissa quickly remembering his vow, he rushes to uh, find his friend, Kolita, which later on became Venerable Mahamu Gallana, and he tells him the whole verse. And Venerable uh, Mahamu Gallana, Kolita at the time, he also becomes a Sotapanna. And to kind of shorten that part of the biography down, um, they try to get their teacher at the time uh, to go with them because they find out where Lord Buddha was staying. So they say, come teacher, come. And he says, well, uh, basically I have all these followers. I can't afford to go and become somebody else's student now, can I? So they just leave. And majority of their fellow students Sanjay was the name of, of the teacher that they had. They also leave with them, with Kualita and Upatissa. And as they're approaching Lord Buddha's, uh, where he was staying with the rest of the Arahant bhikkhus, because in those days, uh, they were all Arahants, uh, from what uh, I gather in, in the suttas. Lord Buddha sees them coming and he stops giving the sermon, uh, the discourse that he was giving to the others, to the other bhikkhus. And he says, behold, bhikkhus, behold, those are the two disciples, two chief disciples of the Tathagata, Tathagata being Lord Buddha. Those are the two chief disciples and they come and they pay homage and they bow to him. And the way he ordains them was simply come bhikkhus, that was it. They became bhikkhus. Now, of course they were living uh, as meditators, ascetics, so they were disciplined enough. Now. Venerable Mahamogallana attains Arahanship, which is the fourth stage, within a matter of a week. And then uh, 
Venerable Sariputta takes another week. So he becomes a Arahant in two weeks. So this is taking place during that week of Venerable Mahamogallana uh, struggling with his meditation like most of us. So it's a very human, and there's elements of this sutta that you're gonna see yourself in. I certainly do. And that's one of the reasons why I fell in love with this sutta because it's so uh, human, it's so uh, real and I can relate to it. Many people can relate to it. And the pitfalls along the line where the Buddha comes in, seeing, reading the mind of uh, Mamo Galana, he appears in front of him and he says, well, we'll find out. So this is from uh, the Anguttara Nikaya or the numerical or gradual discourses of the Buddha. And this is from the Book of the Sevens. Sevens, Sutta number 61. And I will provide a link to the recording of the Sutta that I have done in the retranslation and the recording of it that's on YouTube. I'll put it in the description section. So this is what I personally heard. Who's saying this? This is coming from the mouth of Venerable Ananda, who was there to recount all the suttas pretty much in the first council. So he was the living library. He had a photographic memory. Um, and uh, many, many, many of the suttas have this phrase, which validates. Later on, you see this copied um, um, fraudulently, I would say, uh, in the Mahayana and uh, even some Vajrayana texts where they use the same thing to kind of authenticate the sutras that came, uh, that they were promulgating or advocating. Um, so, but this is the original formula in the Pali Canon. And it, it, the phrase in Pali is evang me sutang. This is what I personally heard. I was there when I heard this, this, this is what I heard. <laughs> Wow, just imagine. So here it starts. At one time, while the Blessed One was staying at the Deer Park on the Susumara Hills within the Bhesakala forest, among the Bhaggans, Bhaggans were the people. Then uh, the Venerable Mahamogallana, who was living in Magadha, in the Kallavalaputta village, seated in meditation, he had begun to doze off. Now the Blessed One with his divine eye, that is pure and far surpassing that of humans, saw that the Venerable Mahamogallana was dozing off during his sit in the Kallavalaputta in the kingdom of Magadha. And just like a strong and agile person would quickly extend or flex his arm, so too the Blessed One disappeared from the Behesakala forest and instantaneously appeared in front of the Venerable Mahamogallana and sat on the prepared seat for him and said to him, by the way, most of the students, disciples of Lord Buddha, 
they had made it a habit of preparing a seat, putting it right there in their cave, in their kuti, just in case the Buddha might show up. <laughs> and he would do that quite often. And if you pay attention to the suttas, he's done it so many times because he's always checking the minds of his students. Who's ready? Who's right there at the cusp? And he would show up there. And out of respect, so the, 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 the seat is prepared for him because they couldn't afford to go. And that's, that's not their job to constantly attend on the Buddha because he would push them back, go and meditate, get your job done and then come back. So they were doing their task, their work, important task. So he says to him, Moggallana, were you dozing off just now? Yes, Pante. Moggallana, when you are drowsy like that in your sitting, you should not continue using your, uh, using nor applying the same object of your meditation. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the, down, the drowsiness and no longer doze off. Sometimes we keep going at it, banging our head against the wall and thinking that it's the problem with the technique. The technique is just a tool. The meditation object is always gonna be just a tool. It is our relationship to it. It is our uh, adherence to it. Adherence in the sense that is there right effort being applied? Is there right effort? Meaning, am I letting go of something here? Meaning, I'm definitely drowsy. I'm, 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 I lost interest. Sounds familiar? I lost interest with my object of meditation. And suddenly, after 11 minutes, suddenly I realized that I've, I've been way off. I've been dreaming, I've been constructing things, I've been lost in papanchas, in mental proliferations, planning things. That's another thing which we like to do, or solving problems, having nothing to do with meditation. So something else has to be done. either coming back to the body temporarily, reestablishing yourself, always reestablishing yourself, grounding yourself, if you will. Because what is the state of dozing off? You're leaking, like I was mentioning earlier. Mindfulness protects, and when there is no mindfulness, that's the only time that we can doze off. If mindfulness is there, it's impossible for us to doze off, to fall asleep, to lose interest. You would know it prior to it happening, therefore it won't happen, because the guard's eyes are on it, on the kileshas, and the unwakeful or non-wakeful or unconscious non-attentive state is a beloved state for the kileshas because that is their playground. That kind of a mind is their playground. They love it. They cannot play in, they can't even access a mind that is mindful, alert. 
But Mokkalana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should carefully think about and ponder on the Dhamma, mentally dissecting various aspects of the teaching that you have learned and studied as you observe and experience them in the mind during the sitting. Memorizing a verse, a word, sometimes does the job. So you don't have to replay the whole discourse, the whole sutta. Sometimes even bringing to mind the name of the people involved or the, or the, or the students or the individuals, characters that were taught something of the Dhamma and it changed them. What inspired you? Sometimes all you have is the generated feeling, the flavor in your heart of what you had heard your teachers say or what you read in a sutta. Even that can pull you out of sleepiness. Even that can bring you to the present moment. Oh, what am I doing? Oh, I'm supposed to be meditating. Ah, I see. Yes, okay. Sometimes just like in this case, the sutta, dozing off, that's the title of the sutta, just recalling that name and realizing the humanity of Venerable Mahamogallana, similarity to your own experiences, sometimes that can do the job to bring you back. And the examples are countless as far as remi reminding yourself of some Dhamma teaching which the Buddha is referring to here, recalling that. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. But, Moggallana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should recite the Dhamma that you have listened to and memorized. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. This is another uh, layer of it. So you're going a little bit more deeper. You're trying to go um, a little bit more to the jugular. You're trying to, uh, because when you are repeating or reciting something you memorized, you definitely activate different parts of the brain. So you're engaging your prefrontal cortex, PFC, which is in the front part of your, your head, your brain, especially the left brain. So it has a lot of analytical thinking. So you're not just doing things by rote, you're actually pausing because on one end, you're so sleepy, you want to sleep, but you can pull yourself out of that. We do this in a negative way, usually, based out of habit. When we have to go to an important meeting and we're sleeping or trying to sleep at night and the meeting is in the morning, uh, probably many of you, if not most of you, have had experiences where you're so worried that you cannot sleep. Well, guess what? You're doing the same technique, but in a negative, harmful way because the brain is now hyperactive 
and sleep is like the last thing on the on, on the table to be considered. So now we're doing this in a constructive way. We're bringing a memorization, even if it's Buddhan Saranangachami, Dhamman Saranangachami, Sangan Saranangachami. I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Even that memorization of that can bring you deeper if you say those words with awareness, with some level of devotion and dedication. But Mogallana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should pull on both ears and rub the body with both hands to create and activate more blood circulation. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. How amazing is that? This is coming from 2,600 years ago. Uh, of course, in my translations, I applied it. Uh, I applied certain phrases that do not necessarily get captured when you are trying to preserve the Dhamma, meaning um, through repeating words, almost formulaic. So many of the human elements get dropped off for posterity's sake. So here we have the Buddha bringing us back to the body, allowing the meditator to ground himself or herself, pulling on the, bl the blood and the earlobes, just pulling them down. It's really gonna bring you to wakefulness. Um, and that's okay, even though I tell uh, students to sit for at least an hour without movement, and sometimes you feel like even halfway through it, you are really trying so hard, but you can't stay focused. That's okay. Go ahead, break the, the break the sit and just pull on the ears, rub the hands, just just get some blood, just keep tapping it. And then go back to your sit. But Mongalana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should get up from your sitting by moving the body, rubbing the eyes with water, looking at different directions by rolling the eyes, and going outside under the stars to look at the stars and the constellations above you. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. Plus, you're getting fresh air. You're moving the body. This happens a lot on retreats where we keep on um, sitting a lot, maybe doing a little bit of uh, walking meditation. Uh, but please be mindful that your walking is as important as your sitting. Yes, as important as your sitting. Uh, plus, you can also damage your uh, body by uh, your sitting sedentary lifestyle. And your heart rate is not beating as, as much, which you need to supply blood to different parts of your body, especially your brain and your extremities. So many meditators um, develop the unfortunate uh, condition of developing uh, blood clots. So walking up and down stairs, I had learned from one of my previous teachers is really helpful, but doing it with alertness, awareness, 
But Mogalana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should concentrate on the perception of light, seeing the brightness of the day in the mind in this manner. The brightness of day shines equally at night. The brightness of the night shines equally during the day. So it makes no difference whether it's dark outside or not. You carry over the brightness of the sun in your mind and you look at things around you with that resultant alertness to be that much awake. Thus keeping your mind fresh and open, the mind should be developed with luminous alertness. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. So you're bringing a mental image of the light in your, in your mind. Looking at stars, if they're out and it's not a cloudy night, or the constellations. As you're breathing in, as you're standing up, first you need to make sure that you don't, you know, to stand up after getting up from being in a drowsy state requires to you to be alert, of course. Then you're lifting your head to look up, which requires you to maintain balance of the body and the tilting of the head. And then looking at stars or constellation requires you to be more focused because they're all gonna be blurry if you're coming from that sleepy state. So all of these stages are trying to bring you and steady you on a state of mindfulness. But Mogalana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should start walking forward and backward, thus being vigilant and alert of what is in front of you, as well as whatever is behind you while keeping your faculties sharp and the mind collected. Now, I used to practice just walking in one direction and then stopping and then turning around and walking back. So this is one way of understanding walking backwards and uh, forward and backward. However, when I notice that a person is, uh, and myself included, uh, very drowsy, then you take it up a notch, a level. And that is looking behind you to make sure it's safe. You're not gonna trip over or fall off a cliff and it's a clear path. You start to attentively walk, literally walk backward with your heel leading the way, heels leading the way. Now, obviously you're gonna walk a lot more steady with a lot, suddenly something happens to your brain because your survival instinct comes into the picture. You do not want to fall. Your brain is gonna come in, your mind is going to come in and tell you all kinds of stories. Oh, there's somebody who came in and, and, and who put a chair there and you're gonna trip over that behind you. So let me check, let me check, let me check. All of these are the Kilesha's playing tricks but one wonderful thing is happening. Whether you like it or not, you're being brought back to wakefulness. 
So all of these methods that the Buddha is listing, you can try them out for yourself to see if they are efficacious, if they're helpful to you or not. As he goes on the list. So when you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. But Mogalana, if after having done this, you still notice that the drowsiness did not disappear, then you should lie down on your right side in the lion's posture. One leg resting overlapped over the other, mindful and clearly knowing what is taking place. So you don't go just like fall on the bed. Ah, oh, finally, the Buddha gave me the permission. Okay, I can just go ahead and just like a log, like a tree, just fall on my mattress or the ground. No, no, no. Every point of contact, you know, you're alert. You know the temperature of the pillow, if you have one, under your head. You notice the points of contact of the body, in this case, the right side. You notice if there's any tension being held in your left ankle or the right. You notice if you're able to keep the balance, because part of the left knee has to come and touch the front part of your uh, body and actually on the mattress or whatever the ground is to maintain a steadiness so you don't flip over on either side. And then he says something interesting. Mindful and clearly knowing what is taking place as you determine to yourself the time for rising up. We do have an internal clock not the, just the biological, the mind, the mental clock. We can determine by saying, I will wake up, let's say at 545. It's interesting also if you can add a little bit more digits at the end. So if you say 545, uh, five o'clock at 45 minutes past and 11 seconds. It's amazing how the mind will comply. But it doesn't happen overnight. It will, it will take slowly, gradually. So initially you can say, I want to wake up at five, let's say. And when you wake up, the first thing you do, just look at the clock. And as you practice that from day to day, Try adding the minutes. And as you progress, you can add the seconds. This is also something that we do for the jhanas when the jhanas are developing to tell ourselves how many minutes or uh, hours um, we're going to be in one. So you determine the time for yourself to wake up. Um, and when it is time to wake up, you do not remain lying down, indulging in a relaxed posture. Ah, oh, stretching, oh, yes. Oh, it was a nice, no. The moment you wake up, 
the mind is as sharp as a katana, as a, as a Japanese samurai sword. It's so sharp. It's so alert. As you remind yourself, I shall get up immediately and not enjoy nor lounge in the pleasure of sloth or drowsiness by going back to sleep, because that's another thing that happens. Because again, the playground, this is the playground of the kileshas, the non-awake mind. We're taking that back. We're taking the mind back from the hands of the kileshas. That is what is meant by plugging those holes of leakage of the asavas. When you make this shift of focus, it becomes possible for you to shrug off the drowsiness and no longer doze off. Further, Moggallana, you should train in this manner. Now, the Buddha, the dozing off part is over in a sense, but the Buddha takes this opportunity to address the other issues that are going on with Venerable Mahamoggallana. See, oftentimes you can tell about the situation, the context from what the Lord Buddha is saying. What points is he trying to address? So you kind of get a very interesting and good uh, idea of what must have been taking place around in the lives of the individuals he's addressing. In this case, he's talking to Venerable Mahamu Gallan, who had just become a bhikkhu for about less than a week in this case. So many ideas come to mind as a bhikkhu. When you're holding your bowl and you're going from house to house, remember, you came from a Brahmin class. People used to serve you hands and feet. They were just like, uh, you know, everything you had was on a silver or gold platter. So now you're essentially a beggar standing in front of people's doors and some people might give you attention, some people might not. Meanwhile, your mind is always working, is coming up with scenarios. You remember the papanchas, mental proliferations? Sankaras are used for that. And the sanya is being used. Sanya sees an image and it connects it, with, associates it with some memory. Ah, yes. That householder yesterday looked eager to see me and quickly ran inside and brought a bowl of rice or gave me some delicious food. But today, why isn't he even looking at me? Ah. Oh. He must not like me, etc., etc. So these are thoughts that go on happening, occurring, and proliferating. New storylines and narratives are added. So this is where the Buddha is addressing that point to help calm Moggallana's expectations and mind down. So he says, you should train in this manner. I will not approach families nor their homes conceited with the arrogance of pride or pride of being somehow superior to them. Because now I'm a bhikkhu. 
Yes, I'm better than a householder. I am supposed to be getting respect or I am supposed to, people used to, are supposed to bow down to me or something like that. I've seen this a lot as a layman and as a bhikkhu as well. I've seen this a lot happening, unfortunately. And this has been going on even at the time of the Buddha as we see. So um, I'm not going to offer anything to those bhikkhus or bhikkhunis at this point. I'll let Buddha talk, Lord Buddha talk about that. That is the way to train yourself. After all, families, lay families, householders, have many tasks and responsibilities to attend to daily. So when a bhikkhu arrives at their door, at first, the householders might not notice him standing there nor attend to him immediately. That should not lead the bhikkhu, however, to think, well, this family seems to ignore me completely. Someone must have turned them against me. They must have now found themselves another recluse, another bhikkhu, to support then myself. They do not like me anymore. And because of such thinking, the bhikkhu feels humiliated. And this leads him to get restless, resentful, and agitated. All the things that we're trying to address while we meditate. You do not want to have an agitated mind. For that, you need to have a calm mind, a tranquil mind. How can we bring about a tranquil mind that is not dozing off? through wakefulness, through attentiveness, through mindfulness and wisdom. But how can we maintain that mindfulness and alertness? By putting in energy. But how can we keep maintaining, keep adding more fuel of energy into this to maintain the attentiveness? We need faith. We need faith in our goodness. We need faith in our efforts. We need faith in the teaching of Lord Pata, that it works. And obviously, faith in our own previous experiences as we've dealt with some of these problems previously. And the Buddha continues, and because of his agitation and restlessness, the bhikkhu loses his sense of restraint. And by losing his restraint, he becomes far removed from experiencing the peace that is the collectedness of mind or samadhi. So when agitation is there, and agitation starts through a restless mind. Restlessness could be uh, trying to jump from one thing to the next. Like when you're sitting, for example, meditating, you constantly feel like you need to get up. You need to leave the seat. You need to just end the sitting. Or another one would be, uh, there's so many examples. But another one would be worrying. Worrying about future. Being remorseful is another that you've broken a precept. Or did you break a precept? So that plays in the head. Again, creating agitation, which makes sure that Nibbana does not take place. 
plain and simple, because Nibbana can only take place when there is samadhi, collectedness or stability of mind happening, taking place. And samadhi cannot take place until there's a tranquility throughout the body, including the brain. They're all connected. They all flow into each other. The Buddha continues on on his advice to Moggallana, Venerable Ma Moggallana. By the way, uh, when the Lord Buddha speaks to his Arant um, uh, disciples or to any of his disciples, uh, the terms that we have, the prefix of Maha Moggallana or Maha Kachana or Maha Kassapa, that is Maha means the great. And to distinguish that person from the other bhikkhus or bhikkhunis who bear the same name. That way you would distinguish. But when the Lord Buddha was addressing them, he would not use the word maha. And uh, so that's, it's the same person that we're talking about. Further, Moggallana, you should train in this manner. I will not engage in debates nor involve myself with contentious discussion, looking for arguments, trying to prove a point or two or three. That is the way to train yourself. After all, when people engage in debates or are involved in contentious discussion, many words are exchanged. This is interesting. When that takes place, the minds become restless. All those involved, their minds become very restless. And guess what? Agitated. Agitation again comes to the picture, which means there's no samadhi. Forget about it. It's not happening. So even though you might be discussing a deep concept or concepts on the Dhamma, hoping that you're kind of getting closer to the goal, you're actually getting farther and farther and farther away from Nibbana. That's why I don't give much credence to uh, debates on the Dhamma or studying of the Abhidhamma, which gets you more and more and more and more into this road that leads nowhere other than more and further agitation. First, get to that state of Samadhi, attain Nibbana, then go ahead and have fun exploring all the principles as far as, as long as your life can take you. So the minds become restless and agitated. And because of agitation and restlessness, people lose their sense of restraint and therefore become far removed from experiencing the peace that is the collectedness of mind, samadhi again. Now the word restraint here is very, very important. It's quite significant because that is when we are bringing down the guard. We're, we're taking away the guard, in fact. The kileshas are coming in. And self-righteousness can come in, or I'm going to prove a point to you comes in, that mentality, which we justify in the back of our mind by saying, well, I'm defending the Dhamma. Well, technically, the Dhamma doesn't need defending. The Dhamma is Dhamma. It's always there. It was there even before the Buddha, after the Buddha, during the Buddha's time. 
it's the teaching that we try to protect. But even that has, you know, an expiration date on it over time. But the only thing that we can have actual control over is the restraint. Restraining oneself from talking too much. Especially when you're engaging with someone else who is trying to prove a point, debate with you, argue with you, contention. And long time ago, even in my time uh, uh, teaching philosophy at the university college levels, I realized how futile it is. Absolutely waste of time. Because I realized what the Buddha had said at that point, I thought I was beating these people in debates and I was feeling so good as I walked away. I felt so good, yes, yes. I was like, okay, but I feel so empty. Like, oh, let's look at that thing that I was defending. Have I even tasted that? And then I understood the value of going and sitting and trying to experience that concept, that principle that the Lord Buddha was talking about, rather than dealing with footnotes of what other people, other seemingly arrogant non-practitioner minds have come up with over the course of centuries, and then talk about them. Life is not about, life is. We either live it or we just talk about it. Only one person is going to truly enjoy it, though, and reap its benefits. Furthermore, Galana, I neither promote associating with others, nor do I stand against associating with others completely. I do not, however, encourage association between bhikkhus and householders. But I do appreciate and encourage resorting to secluded places that are quiet and far removed from the noise of the crowds, far removed from social activities, where the bhikkhu can peacefully practice and gain from the benefits of seclusion. Again, all of these points the Buddha is addressing, given from his comments, from his instruction, we see the Buddha never said something that was not called for. There was a need for him to say these words to give this advice to Venerable Mahamal Gallan, because these were dominating his mind. These were ricocheting throughout the day and night, whereby he was also falling asleep because of his exhaustion of going about what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. So the Buddha's clarifying to him what his expectations are from him as a bhikkhu. What is being a bhikkhu? Remember, this is the beginning of the sasana, beginning stages of the tradition of what became uh, Buddha sasana, or what we can loosely term as Buddhism. So these later on became the guidelines for other bhikkhus to follow. So when the Buddha spoke, he was not just speaking to one particular person. 
the listener, even if it was just him and the other person. But that message was to be carried on and on and on and spread out through the masses and the other bhikkhus uh, who were going to train and be in the same boat as Venerable Mahamukallana. Now associating with laity or householders, many, many bhikkhus look for a way out. It's not easy being a bhikkhu if we're going literally with the way that the Buddha talks about and explains. Being a bhikkhuni or a bhikkhu, if you're going to go with those um, set of instructions, first we need to ask ourselves, why become a bhikkhu? Well, because you want to end sansara. You're serious. You're more serious than um, a householder, let's say. Well, at least on, on, on the surface, because exceptions are very well respected here. So simply because a person is a bhikkhu does not necessarily um, um, end up uh, producing those results for which we wear the robes. I'm reminded of uh, Ajahn Mahabua, who passed away, one of the arahants of the 20th century. He says, the hell realms are full of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. When I heard that, I was like, wow. Hell is full of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. This is a powerful statement to make. Many people will not like it. Many people in robes will not like it, definitely. So we need to hold ourselves to a higher, higher, I'm sorry, level of expectation from ourselves. And that's why the Buddha is encouraging us not to associate. Well, when you're associating with a householder, the householder, uh, well, they have different responsibilities. For one, they usually are in a relationship with someone, romantic relationship. Very importantly, they're involved with life, with earning a living, with business, with um, other social, socially demanding concerns. They're probably raising families. It's very, very uh, unique to find a householder who isn't uh, found in those categories. Are there uh, householders like that? Absolutely. But there are quite, quite few. Now, when a bhikkhu sits and talks with a householder, associates with, other things will come out. Many of the precepts or the Vinaya rules came about because of the interaction or the association between bhikkhus or bhikkhunis with lay people. Especially if there's the frequency of meeting each other. If it's of opposite sex, many, many problems started happening. And the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, for example, because ultimately we are human beings, we have all of these kileshas playing around. So the Buddha is trying to eliminate opportunities for the kileshas to come out. Hence his insistence on going to a remote place or a place where there aren't those householder concerns, socially demanding concerns, 
However, we do need the lay life, of course, for support. And plus, it's a two-way street in the sense that when a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni goes on pindapada, alms round, or, or nowadays, not many bhikkhus, or actually a very small, small amount of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis can do that in the world today. Uh, it's more often the case of lay people coming to, um, to the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni or the monastery or the center and offer food. So whether it's on Pindapada or when, whether they're coming over and bringing the food, that is an opportunity for the laity to make tremendous merits, which the Buddha did not want to um, um, take away from uh, being generated by the laity. Plus, this is even more important in my opinion, what takes place after the dana of the food. There is a Dhamma sharing by the monastic with the laity. In those days, they didn't have therapists, they didn't have, you know, confessionals, they didn't have any of these things. Um, and many of them would work from 3 a.m. all the way to 5 p.m. Farmers, etc. Very exhausting lifestyle. And it was very easy to be sucked into a kind of kilesha ridden life. But seeing a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni was an opportunity. So he wanted to, the Lord Buddha is trying to maintain that integrity. But in order for that to take place, the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni have to work on themselves on a consistent basis. That's why the reason why we become bhikkhus and bhikkhunis is simply to attain Nibbana first and foremost. And in the process, we're chiseling ourselves, we're polishing ourselves, our behavior, we're developing more and more restraint, control over the mind, understanding, more insights, so we can share with the world. But we're not hanging out, playing poker, we're not talking politics, we're not talking as to which president uh, needs to be elected. Some bhikkhus have been very engaged in that, especially this past year. So these are very, very, uh, um, um, you know, shaky grounds to be on for a monastic. And this is where the Buddha is setting the bar high. When this was said, The Venerable Mahamogallana said this to the Blessed One. Bhante, is there a concise and succinct teaching that can be defined with the help of which a bhikkhu, by following it closely, gets liberated through the destruction of craving, thereby becoming supreme among both devas and humans? A brief and encapsulating instruction that could allow one to reach the highest goal of the holy life. Thus, winning freedom from bondage once and for all. Is there such a thing, just something like pocket size, something that I can remind myself? Maybe even be used as one of those tools that Lord Buddha was instructing Venerable Mahamogallana to use, repeating, reciting a certain 
phrase perhaps. So that's what Venerable Mahamogalana is like, he's listening. It's no wonder that he attained Arahantship in a week, right? Plus his multitude of merits, of course. And Lord Buddha responds, indeed Moggallana, now listen and attend closely. That's very important. When the Buddha said that, everybody's ears would just be like a German shepherd. They were like ready to listen, careful. They don't want to miss a beat. And the Venerable Moggallana says, yes, Lord. And the Buddha gives the advice. Here, Moggallana, the bhikkhu ponders how nothing is suitable to be held onto, to be clung to, nothing. When the bhikkhu ponders how nothing is suitable to be held onto, then he comes to directly know and understand everything. Everything. And one's relationship to everything. That is also understood. Now, Moggallana, once the bhikkhu directly knows and understands everything thus, he observes each of his feelings that arise, whether pleasant, painful, or neutral. And he sees that each of these are in fact impermanent and never lasting. That is the connecting line one of the connecting lines of the underlying theme of everything that a big or a person gets to know fully. Everything that is made of sankharas, of, is conditioned, is structured, is built up, is there, is temporal, follows the rules of time. It follows the fact that the rule, the law of impermanence. And whatever is impermanent also is stamped, tattooed in its DNA with suffering. So whatever is impermanent also is going to bring out the sense of suffering. So the bhikkhu, in this case, is seeing every single feeling that he has coming up. He's seeing it only because there is sati, by the way. You're not conceptualizing it. You're seeing it as it happens. That's why your attention, your protection is mindfulness. To protect yourself from the sixth sense doors, which are always, always trying to bring in new information, new data, new feelings, whether it's painful, pleasant, or neutral. So we cannot afford to be asleep, not awake, unconscious when these feelings are coming up, because most of us are unconscious. And the Buddha is trying to ameliorate that, to fix that here. So when he sees this, that things are impermanent and never lasting, he also understands how each of these feelings fade away and vanish. Whatever he was holding on to, 
poof, it's like smoke, it's like fog, gone. All that dedication one had given to this thing, to this emotion. Oh, he did this to me, she did this to me. I want to get that for myself. Otherwise, this would happen. All of a sudden, the time comes and goes, and where is it? All that is there is the wastage, oh, the waste of the energy and time and life. So as these feelings fade away and vanish, which leads him to become disenchanted with them. Disenchantment is crucial for awakening to take place. Disenchantment. In fact, it's one of the things that happens if the person is progressing correctly when samadhi is being established nicely in them. Slowly, inevitably, inevitably, disenchantment must take place. Disenchantment is another way of saying the person no longer clings to, nothing is deserving, nothing is worth clinging to, being held on to. That's basically what we're describing as disenchantment. Disenchantment is that. Then the bhikkhu, in seeing and understanding how each of these feelings cease in their intensity, becomes dispassionate towards them, viraga, dispassionate. Most of us, in order for us to live life, we need to cultivate a certain, certain sense of attachment to things. That's how life has taught us, how schools and societies have taught us to hold on to our enjoyments and push away what is the opposite of that. And when we do find something that is enjoyable, we latch onto it with what? With passion. Oh, you see a beautiful sunset. You want to grab everybody on the planet and show them that what you're seeing. Send them a picture on Instagram. finally eating that meal that you are craving. And meanwhile, if somebody comes and tries to ask you, what could you describe the flavors? You're lost in, you're just like, you're probably not even using a fork and a knife. You're all, your face is in there, metaphorically speaking. You're not alert. Why? Because this, uh, there is no dispassion. You and the food are one in that sense, which is a negative sense at this point, because there's no wakefulness, there's no alertness. You don't know what's going on. You're just lost in that pleasurable experience. Basically, you're holding on to. And a few minutes later, you're going to feel so much remorse because you've added another 10, 20 pounds, more depressed. And this leads him to relinquish his grip, the, the, the dispassion, leads him to relinquish his grip from holding on to anything. By not grasping anything thus, he no longer becomes anxious, restless, nor agitated. Rings a bell? We see how dispassion is directly connected with becoming non-agitated. 
but how do we get agitated to begin with? When the mind is not there, when you are not alert, when you're living unconsciously, when you're lost in any type of feeling that comes in because you're identifying with them. This is me, this is who I am. I am this pleasurable experience. I can't believe I've waited for you this long and finally you're here. I don't want you to leave. Or pushing away the painful experience. Again, identification. You and me, we're two diametrically opposite things. Get out of here. Attachment, clinging on to, which also brings agitation because your mind is not there. And by not becoming agitated anymore, he experiences the ultimate relief that is Nibbana. At that instant, the bhikkhu knows with direct understanding, birth is now finally destroyed. The holy life has now been fully lived with its goal achieved. There is no more coming back to any state of being, becoming. The person has become an arahant. So the Buddha just gave him the most concise instruction, which we're glad to know that it really did the work for him. That's why we know it works. This medication works for one. This Moggallana is the brief and concise way by following which the bhikkhu becomes supreme among both devas and humans having liberated oneself through the destruction of craving by reaching the highest goal of the holy life, thus winning freedom from bondage once and for all. This is the ending of the sutta. So I will uh, pause now and uh, ask for um, um, comments and questions. Comments and questions. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, thank you, Bhante. Um, I, I, I really did like how you pointed out, because when I read this, because I've read, I, I read the Sutta a couple of times, maybe, yeah, I think it was twice this week. And I did sort of wonder why he was I'd, like going into what, what felt like a separate teaching um, at the end of the step-by-step uh, -step guide, how to get rid of it. But with you pointing out that this is obviously something that Morgulana himself was probably facing. It helps it come alive. So it's it's interesting for going forward with reading more suttas and hearing yourself explain them because it makes them feel more personal. Mm. So, yeah. which is which I think is important because suttas can feel very dry, don't they? Like, can't they? If, if you don't understand what you're saying, it's um, yeah, it's priceless. So thank you. Yes, absolutely. yes, absolutely. Um, the thing. Um, I've noticed quite often in my own um, work in the Dhamma, uh, in reading the suttas, I would always feel disassociated. Like it's, it's almost impersonal. I would try to tease out the humanity just to try to find, okay, how can this be relatable to me? Like you pointed out, how can this be 
something that a modern human being living in the 21st century, something that they could relate to and, and see, yeah, yeah, that, that's possible. Um, because, and, and that's a price that, uh, you know, we had to pay, I guess, to get the Dhamma this far in the hands or in the mouths of recitations because uh, for about 500 years, there was no writing. 500 years is a long time. And, and they've gotten it to that point until it was actually carved in stone and then et cetera, into later on into palm leaves, uh, ola leaves in, in, in Sri Lanka and other places. Um, but even that, so they became very formulaic mnemonic devices where um, that's why we have a lot of numbers, for example. Uh, so that the brain that was remembering these suttas to recite in gatherings uh, could be able to latch on to these stories. So what usually would happen uh, is, is the humanity or the human element often might be dropped for the sake of a bigger thing. But I, there's also something to be said about uh, scholars uh, who are fallen, you know, who fall in love with their own ideas and uh, their own interpretations of things. And um, so that can easily uh, take us to the route of abstractions, further dissociating you from the teaching until you just can't wrap your mind around it. Like, forget it, I need to have a PhD or three of them to understand what this verse is saying. But all you have to do is look at, back at the Buddha's life and he was talking to farmers who were becoming sotapanna just from listening to him. How is that possible? Unfortunately, today, today you have teachers, bhikkhus, who say that, uh, yes, it's a, it is no longer possible to attain Nibbana. And these are not one or two bhikkhus or bhikkhunis who are saying this, which is so sad. Um, and yes, uh, in agreement with what you were saying further, um, there's a tendency of dumbing down Dhamma watering it down so much that we even take out the plausibility of attaining Nibbana out of the equation saying, well, it's, it's forget it. It's just the most you can do is, is, is earn some merits and be reborn in a heavenly realm. That is what often uh, uh, we run into. And I'm trying to change that. Um, with the help of retranslating the sutta so that I can bring back some of the humanity because I, one of the reasons why I took on this task of retranslating many of the suttas and recording them also on YouTube is to um, bring, flesh it out, add more texture and look at it as a meditator versus a scholar or not, you know, that's, that's not it the Buddha was a human being talking to human beings or devas, but he was relating with them. So absolutely, thank you for that. Other thoughts, comments, questions?
I can't see if anyone's raising their hand or anything. So you can go ahead and just start talking. If... Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Pastor. Yes. About Sati, the mindfulness, like uh, I just had a 10 day retreat with uh, Pastor Vimal Ramsey on Zoom and uh, and this uh, mindfulness was uh, maybe like that I need more of it. So your talk was wonderful on this <laughs> and this sutta. So thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, the suttas are not there to confuse us. Um, they're there to help us in our progress. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned last week, uh, last time when we first started this series, to not look at the suttas as, or to read the suttas or listen to the suttas as we would the news, the newspaper, a magazine, a novel, um, a science fiction novel or a fiction novel or, or you know, whatever novel, but to try to understand what is there and its relationship with what I am going through, the person is going through because it is quite interesting and also initially maybe even shocking to find that 2,600 years ago almost, human beings were also in the same boat as you, as me. When, when, I, you know, when I read the Lord Buddha telling uh, Venerable Mahamu Galana, pull on the earlobes, <laughs> I was like, wow, he's human. He's human. Venerable Golana was human, even though he attained for in a week. So it brought him back to, you know, I can't say equal ground, but as a human being, it's it's not impossible then, because he's facing these these difficulties. And at the end, I saw the beauty of uh, Lord Buddha, the humanity. Okay, you try this, you try that, you try that, and ultimately, when all of these things don't work, go lay down but do so mindfully. So there's compassion. He's not saying, no, push through it, push through it. So yes, I'm glad it's, it's, uh, it's helping you, the sutta. And that's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to start these series because I, I don't want them to be just like, um, you know, conceptual endeavors or, or, or intellectual undertaking of getting more data. I'm more interested in its applicability in your life and your practice. Any other thoughts, questions? Let me ask you a question then. What um, in, in hearing the sutta today, did it trigger anything in you? Um, something that you didn't know, something that you knew, but it kind of gave you a different slant, different understanding. Again, I'm not seeing if there are hands up, so please jump in and start speaking. 
this is Lilith. Can I can yes. I tell something? Please. Um, uh, I was listening very carefully, and it's uh, really I I agree with you that this is very human, and uh, what problems uh, Mahamugalana faced on his path. Um, some of them also are familiar, and uh, that was a really big surprise for me that uh, if you are drowsy, you can remember the uh, chantings, um, part of chantings, because sometimes my mind uh, just brings it in mm -hmm. when I'm <laughs> I, I was not I'm not focused on but in a way of songs like how how are you singing uh, sometimes I think that it's not right because maybe um, um, I don't know I don't know I'm not sure that um, I really um, so conscious to understand to to remember what it is saying about but um, Sometimes I think that maybe I just listen it uh, as a music. I wonder if uh, if there is more um, uh, there are more things that I need to pay my attention on. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's um, first of all, it's good that the chanting is keeping you focused. The next. Uh, phase of that, I would say, uh, is to understand what the chanting is all about. Because that will take it to a totally different level. Let's say when we say Buddhang Saranangachami, I go for refuge, for protection to the Buddha or to the Dhamma. So it's, it's important for us when we are during the daytime, when we have the time, when we're not meditating, to research perhaps a little bit, see what, what is the Buddha? Is, is it the person who lived and died 2,600 years ago? Or is it the possibility, the potential, the, the faith in the fact that, that I too can attain what he attained? Nibbana that I too can be free from suffering like he did and countless other students of his did. Am I taking refuge in that? So next time you're saying the words then or singing or in your mind, okay, that emotion is generated, that feeling. And all of a sudden that can bring you to experience uh, tranquility of mind tranquility in the body, which opens up uh, the opportunity because tranquility also has a very close relationship with piti, which joy, sometimes it's translated as a rapture, which is one of the jhanic factors. So when joy is there, if it's genuine joy of the best kind, what happens after that is immediately there's a tranquility that lasts longer than a normal joyful experience. You see someone you like or after such a long time. This is different because now there is a sense of serenity and tranquility that comes in. And that is facilitating the tranquility 
the presence and the introduction of samadhi into the mind. So suddenly, because you chanted and felt resonance of what that word meant, suddenly you are feeling really nice because there's tranquility. And it's like the after effect of piti, of joy. And now all of a sudden the mind is so collected. That's why I don't use the word concentration for samadhi. Collectedness. Sama means all of those things. So collected mind. Which opens the door for Nibbana. So approaching it like that. Understanding, yes, absolutely is useful as to what you're saying. But not to be caught in the chanting. Oh, yes, yes, I like to chant. No, that's not meditation. <laughs> Great question. Anyone else? Yes. Bante, uh, I was quite surprised um, not to hear the mention of joy in the sutta as, as a as a like as a remedy, I guess, for sloth because it's it's for me it's been like essential you know like just to bring up a smile in the mind or a, a laugh if i'm doing some walking meditation and i'm really like you know it can really shift mm -hmm. yeah i just yeah i wonder if you have any thoughts on that um well you're not, uh, well you're not you're not gonna have, you're not gonna have the, uh seven factors of awakening for example um uh, pt being one of them um, to show up in every discourse that the Buddha is giving uh, solutions to a problem. Um, so, um, you know, there's so much, so many tools that could have been used, of course. Um, but uh, the Buddha is not going to use all of those tools. You use what you can. When you're make, making dinner or lunch or something, working in the kitchen, you're not going to use every single knife set, every single spoon, to create that omelet, for example, right? So you use what you can. Um, so similarly, however, uh, as the, um, the instruction is being given to Venerable Mahamud Galana to go outside and walk, for example, under the stars and the constellations, I could almost breathe the fresh air that he would be breathing if, if and when he leaves the cave. And he goes outside and sees that inevitably, if you've ever stepped out under the stars at night by yourself and the fresh breeze is blowing, I don't know about you, but I feel joyful. And there's this sense of ease. I don't feel the tension in my wrists, in my, my legs. The blood is circulating. So I would, I mean, there's so many ways of approaching your question, but in answering it, but that would be one. Uh, of course, also lying down. <laughs> Sometimes when you lie down at that last phase of like you tried all of them and it didn't work. Sometimes lying down, if the mind is still sharp or becoming sharp, it feels actually uh, becomes sharper because there's a joy coming in because the body now is resting. And we don't know how many hours Venerable Mahamu Galana was meditating that day. He was a very, uh, you know, dedicated meditator. So he might have been meditating for two, three days straight without sleep, perhaps. 
that is what many dedicated uh, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis would do. So we don't know. So when he's lying down on his back, on his right side, he might feel the joy, which would bring out even more uh, sati. And that would keep a person for awake for another one or two hours. I know on, on some retreats or even now, uh, my life has become like an ongoing retreat. <laughs> Um, but uh, when I feel exhausted from sitting and I do walking meditation or when I say, okay, you tried it, you tried it. Okay, go ahead and, and, and lay down. Now I want to lay down on my right side and I can't sleep because I'm noticing everything. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're so attentive. Not like, it's, it, it just comes naturally. And there's this sense of freedom with that. And I see elements of joy. But yes, you're right. He wasn't, he didn't mention it here, but they don't necessarily have to be all uh, incorporated in every sutta. It can be hinted at, you know, assumed to be assumed there. To be there. Bhante, I just heard you mention then about lying down on your right side, and I've never had a satisfactory explanation what's important about the right side as opposed to the left side. Is there a, a Dharma explanation why we, we should pick the right side? Um, I have not come across any, um, using your terms, a Dhamma explanation. Uh, as to the reason why uh, we are encouraged to sleep on the right side. Um, however, when I was um, studying years ago, um, Ayurveda and then uh, traditional Chinese medicine, medicine for a bit, I noticed how um, also Western medicine, a little bit and just researching it, not studying it properly. But I saw that there would be undue pressure placed on the heart when we are uh, sleeping on the left side. Um, and which, uh, in the, especially in the case of um, um, meditators, because now the heart is going to beat a little bit uh, more intensely to supply because there's more pressure. The lungs are there, gravity is there, and there's more blood to be pumped forcibly through the heart. And the biggest consumer of calories and blood in the body, of course, is the brain. So, and the brain has all these fine uh, neural pathways. In some places, it's actually, it's so narrow that only a single red blood cell can go through. That's how narrow a space we're talking about. So when a person is meditating, is of course you're not going to find this in the suttas that's what this is my own research and experience um, uh, there will be further faster and faster um, circulation of blood cells going through these fine neural pathways which will inevitably create extra sense of restlessness and agitation which we're trying to avoid completely so um, and um, in ayurveda i know that they would say um, watch out for the digestive uh, um, processes that are taking place, especially after you've eaten, um, if you sleep on the left, uh, right side versus the left side. 
So, um, but I have failed to find any um, legitimate, I would say, dumb my explanation uh, for this. Other than in my own experience, I, I, I was injured in my right side. So I had trauma on my uh, right temple. So for me, it has been an issue for many years to kind of follow this system, <laughs> Lord Buddha. So I would sleep on my left side, knowing full well of these detrimental factors that I pointed out. But it would, I would be concerned about the blood circulation in these, uh, this area where I had major uh, injuries to my arteries. So, but then eventually I developed the faith to trust it and to allow my body to feel safer and more protected. So that's a little bit of a personal thing. I hope that answers your question though. <laughs> I hope I had more details from the Dhamma, but I'd never found it. Perhaps if you do, please do share with us. Any other thoughts, uh, comments? Please don't raise your hand, just jump in because I can't see with this format that I'm using. I can't see your hands. Well, uh, in that case, um, I'm really happy that you guys are here and enjoying these suttas and again, they're a joy to be sharing them with you. And uh, my fear has been in the past that suttas were not going to be uh, used by meditators in time because of the tediousness of many of the formats that I've come across where repetitions were omitted completely and are still being omitted in both print and digital. Um, in some cases, even the Pali is omitting uh, the repetition sections, but they're extremely important. And um, the Pali suttas are crucial um, for our progress because that is the place where we still have a chance of finding the teaching of Lord Buddha, not in its watered down version, like I was referring to. So, and these are some of the suttas which I uh, keep adding on to. So I added uh, a few this week as well. But uh, of course, I will let you know as to what as they come up. But the next one will be different than the list that I had originally uh, Damadina had sent to you. So I will give you uh, the, and the not next week's because next week we have the retreat. Uh, the following Sutta exploration series will include uh, Anguttara Nikaya Sutta number uh, from the Book of Nines, Sutta number 11. It's called the Sihanada Sutta, the Lion's Roar. This is different than the Lion's Roar, the Chula, and the Maha Sihanada Sutta that we find in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's a wonderful Sutta where someone accuses Venerable Sariputta of something. And it's, uh, I'm smiling because there's another human element, which is so like, it's so beautiful where you have, before the situation takes place, you have both Venerable Ananda and Venerable Sariputta. You can almost see the excitement in the air in the monastery. They're rushing with their keys in hand because they had the master key to the kutis. They were rushing from kuti to kuti 
knocking on the doors and if no, no, no one was answering, they were opening them up and say, come on, Avuso, friend, come, come. Today is the day where Venerable Sariputta will roar his lion's roar. Come, you don't want to miss this, come. So they were going around the whole monastery uh, encouraging people and you can just imagine the robes showing up in front of the Buddha because it was going to go down. <laughs> Something was going to happen and Venavasariputta was going to roar his lion's roar because it was a big event when a noble disciple roars his lion's roar. Uh, that's the Sihanada. Siha means lion. So uh, that's what I um, want to chose for us to go over. So it's from the Anguttara Nikaya or numerical discourses, um, sutta number uh, from the book of nines and sutta number 11. And I will ask Dhammadina to send you uh, a link to it uh, because I translated that last week and, and, and recorded it. It's up on YouTube now. It's always a pleasure. Uh, sharing Dhamma with you all and uh, and in your work seeing the continuation of the Buddha Sasana uh, in your work on yourselves and may your work be fruitful and progress continuous and uh, may you be inspired uh, by these suttas so let us share some merits May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the achievement and acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. See you all next week. See you all next week. Be well. Thank you, Bhante. Be well. Thank you, Bhante. Thank you, Bhante. Sad, sad.